thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD, coming at you on 860 The Answer. And I think our website, you correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, is 860theanswer.com. Is that it? AM860theanswer.com. AM860theanswer.com. Or you can just type uh, WGUL into your uh, browser and you should be able to find our website. And you can reach me on the web 9 to 10 a.m. every Sunday. Eastern Standard Time, anywhere in the world. I'm your international Dr. Bill. Put on your headset, go to the website, click Listen Live, and you got me. This is talk radio, interactive radio. If you're joining the show for the first time, I stick with one theme as a general rule, and I usually ask a few questions later in the show and give away a little prize to a few people who call and have something intelligent to say. We want the intelligent ones. Now, if you're interested in joining the show on the topic or you have a question about the topic, you can give Chris a call and he can ferret it out and see if it's appropriate for this show. And we can also put you on the air. And if you're ashamed or embarrassed or self-conscious about being on the air, you can also call Chris and just ask him the question and he'll ask me. I can hear him in the background. It's really cool the way all this radio stuff works. At any rate, I'm I'm thinking more about the economics of the political race, Democrats versus Republicans, Trump versus uh, Cruz, so on and so forth. And there's a lot of criticism out of the Republican plans that they aren't going to bring in tax money uh, enough to pay for everything and that they're actually going to be deficit spending, increased deficit spending. By the way, we had $500 billion in deficit last year, 2015. That's... Uh, about, I'm going to say about 15 to 20% of what we actually took from the folks. You know, we're running a taxation about one and a half to two trillion a year. So that's about 20%, somewhere in there, 15%. So we still got a pretty hefty deficit that we're going to have to fight down one way or another. Now, there are some little nuances to it that make it maybe seem not such a bad thing, but that's another talk. But right now I want to talk about the income disparity that the Democrats are talking about between the rich and the poor and who's paying what in the United States and are the poor really getting poor or are the rich really getting richer and what the divide is and what percentage of the population owns what. First of all, I want to know what is poverty because this is something that the Democrats throw around a lot. In their mind, poverty is a state of one who lacks a usual and socially acceptable amount of money or material possessions. So if I have a radio studio and you don't, then you're impoverished when it comes to radio. And although there is some emotional sense to that because we're human beings and like most animals, we, uh, 
kind of want what the other guy has. We think that what he has is better or cooler or more, although the problems of the rich and the poor are often the same, family, children, alcoholism, drug abuse, all kinds of things. Yes, there is more violent crime and more uh, person-on-person crime as you go down lower socioeconomic levels. Uh, Is that a byproduct of poverty or low income, or is that a byproduct of crowding or of lack of uh, resources or of education? There's a whole number of factors that come into play because certainly there are countries that are uh, relatively poor compared to us, like uh, Morocco and Tunisia, who have very, very, very little violent crime. Uh, Their murder rate's one to two per year. So there's got to be something more to to it than just the socioeconomics of the situation. There has to be something to the way we're raised, to the uh, early environment, to what we're exposed to, how our parents act, so on and so forth. And a lot of this has to do with young parents and mature teenage parents. And, of course, teenage parents lack the skills. And it's not just humans. We were taking a an airboat ride and on a lake that was a little bit east of Orlando on a vacation there one time. And we went by one mound uh, that a uh, little alligator she was tending, and it was pretty low down. And the guy said that she's there because she doesn't know what to do. I said, what do you mean? She looks like she's pretty young, a teenager. He said, yeah, that's her first mound, and she didn't know to build higher. So it doesn't matter whether you're human teens or alligator teens or bird teens. There's a learning curve there to becoming a parent, and that's where we need to intervene, in my humble opinion. So the definition of poverty for the uh, Democrats is that we're not even in everything. My iPad or my cell phone is smarter and bigger and prettier than yours. I personally don't see that as a measure of poverty. I see it more as having uh, inadequate means, either money or goods or support, to meet the basic necessities of life, that is, have a roof over your head, be out of the weather, uh, be warm when it's cold, uh, cool off a little bit when it's hot, have enough calories to meet your daily needs, uh, have enough money or resources to put clothes on your children and yourself, and money to get around because we don't hunt and gather anymore, so we have to go to a job and go shopping. So for me... It's, it's more about your ability to care for yourself and your family. And in that sense, I don't think it's anywhere close to what the Democrats are talking about. So you have to decide for yourself what you think poverty is. And there are different measures. The poverty guidelines and poverty thresholds are both measures, and they intend to identify the level of income necessary to meet basic needs. And these are kept by different parts of the government. Poverty measure concepts, the official and the supplemental. The official poverty measures include families and unrelated individuals living in a household. The poverty threshold is three times the cost of the minimum food diet, as it was in 1963. This was the initial threshold that was set. So if the cost of food for a family of four per year is 4000 then the minimum would be 12000 
actually the poverty line for a family of four is around 25000 so things have inflated a lot. There are threshold adjustments in the official poverty measure. It varies by family size, the composition of the family, and the age of the householder. Needless to say, if you have very young and very old, you're going to be more impoverished, even if you're affluent, because if you have paid off your home and you live in a nice 1,500-square-foot uh, ranch in a nice neighborhood, you got a little lawn, so you only have your income taxes and your insurance to pay on the house and utilities, and you're retired, you're receiving Medicare and maybe a little bit more here and there, your income has dropped precipitously from when you were working. Are you impoverished? That's the question. So there's a number of factors that we have to look at. And if you have young children in the house, they're takers. They have to be because they don't know how to hunt and gather yet. We haven't taught them. They're learning how to hunt and gather. They're learning how to go out and get a job to be a productive member of society, to shop and to buy wisely and not buy junk food and not buy chips and not buy uh, Game Boys when they need other things in their life. The Consumer Price Index is another measurement of the official poverty measurement. And then gross before tax cash income. And, of course, that doesn't bode well for somebody who's making 60000 with a family of four and has to pay 5000 in tax, whereas a family of four making 30000 pays no tax and actually will get some assistance back in ways such as health insurance premium supplementation by the federal government coming from our taxes. So it's a, it's a very relative kind of measurement, and we have to take into account a number of things. It may seem that our incomes per capita, per household, are dropping for most of us, but a lot of us are going into retirement years. You know, the baby boomers are hitting the Social Security age. Of course we're going to have less money, and of course we're going to appear less affluent. The supplemental poverty measurements, however, include all related individuals who live in the same house, including any co-residents unrelated to the children who are cared for the, by the family, such as foster children, any, any cohabitors and their relatives, and there are a lot of families that are going together. I have a number of patients who have not lived with a parent, and now that they are re approaching their retirement years and their parents are in their 80s and approaching a period where the parents need help and the parents have some assets, then the families are moving in together and taking care of each other. The poverty threshold and the supplemental poverty measurement is the 33rd percentile of expenditures on food, clothing, shelter, and utilities of consumer units with exactly two children multiplied by 1.2. So it's a little more complex formula. It also includes geographic adjustments for differences in housing cost and three parameters, equivalent scale for family size and composition. So if you live in New York City, you're going to pay a lot more for 1,500 square feet, especially in Manhattan, than you are in St. Petersburg or Tampa, Florida. And these things have to be factored in. A resource measure includes the sum of all your cash, 
plus non-cash benefits that families can use to meet their needs for food, clothing, shelter, and utilities, minus their taxes or plus tax credits, minus work expenses, minus out-of-pocket medical expenses, and child support paid to another household. So it gets more complex as you go into a little better refined measurement, and the differences are not as stark, and there is not as much poverty as you would think or as the Democrats would lead us to, to believe. It just doesn't exist at the level that the Democrats say it exists at. And you say, well, what kind of benefits do you get that add to your income? Well, if you're employed by a big company, you're probably getting your health insurance subsidized. You're paying less for your premium working for a larger company. Or if you're in the exchange program through Obamacare, you're getting help from the federal government, which is taxes that we pay. So you're getting indirect help from your friends and neighbors. And so there are a number of things that we have to take into account when we look at these numbers. And we also have to think about the inflation rate versus the income rise. And you say, well, the income's not been going up like it should. After the recession, 08, 09, 010, incomes, or during that, I should say, the incomes really dropped. And they're starting to come back, but they certainly have not reached the highs of the late 1990s. But, and here's the big but, more people are going to jobs that will pay a little less, but give them more benefits. Health insurance, disability insurance, a little life insurance policy, health savings accounts, a retirement plan. And so we have to think about all the other things that we're getting in lieu of, in place of hard cash. Why do we do this? Well, look, if you're making 60 grand a year, you don't want to make any more because you're going to pay more taxes. So if your boss says, I'm going to give you a raise, you say, well, rather than that, can you just pay all of my health care insurance? That's about the same. It's a wash. It doesn't appear as income to you, or at least it didn't until Obamacare. I don't know what the law says now. I haven't investigated that lately. But you get the idea there are certain things that you can receive in benefits that are not taxed. And that's one thing I like about uh, Trump and some of the other plans of increasing the health savings accounts, making those uh, be carryable forward. You can carry that forward into the next year, and you can use it for health care, education, any number of reasonable things that you need and it's not taxed and you can leave it to your heirs or you can take it out when you retire. Obamacare tried to cut that down to 2,500. I think the Republicans have fought it back up to 3,200 or somewhere in that range. I'm not sure. I can't remember the exact figures. I know it's higher than what the Democrats wanted when they pushed Obamacare through. So, the official poverty rate is now 46.7 million, and if there's 300 million of us, that's a big chunk, rounded out to 50. That's about a sixth of the population, according to the numbers. But the poverty rate's about the same. It's staying at 14.8%, uh, and since the 1960s, it's been going up and down. Uh, generally below that, but at, at about that, anywhere from 10 to 15% poverty rate. So it hasn't changed a whole lot, a whole lot. Now, there was a big dip with the recession, but that happens. 
you know, recessions come and recessions go. But actually, I did not know this, but in researching this, the more affluent households drop lower than the poor households. Why is that? Because they have a lot of money in stocks and bonds, which drop in price in a recession or in real estate. Uh, excuse me, that would be me, the dumb one over here in the corner holding title to a lot of property that's now worth about half of what I paid for it. <laughs> but that's what I get for thinking I'm smarter than the next guy. So what is the official poverty level for a family four? It's around 25000 For two, it's around 15000 that's not a lot of money to get by on, but that doesn't take into account all the benefits, all the supplements, the food stamps, uh, the tax credits, uh, aid to families with dependent children, Medicaid for the kids. So it's really more than that. If you just take it at the base numbers, if you, if you just look at numbers, then I'm making probably 15 times that amount. If you look at the amount that I actually take home, it's considerably less uh, and as a proportion of my income, it's much less than what uh, a family of two living at poverty level receiving benefits takes home, proportionately. And you say, well, it's just not fair that you have so much and I have so little. It depends on how you look at it. There was an economics professor who had his class voice the same concerns. And he said, well, let me ask you a question. If we take the grades from the top 25% of the class and decrease those and give them part of that to the bottom 25% of the class to bring up the grades so we're all closer, would you do that? What do you think they said? They all said, no, that's not fair. You say, well, that's intellectual, Doc. That's not financial. That's not tangible. That's true, and so we have to look at it a little bit differently. But we also have to be honest about what we take into account when we decide what poverty is and how people are living, and do they need more, and is it fair that Adelson or Bill Gates or Warren Buffett are worth 50 to 100 billion, and some guy in South St. Pete's worth what he gets check to check? I don't know. I, you know, it's, that's something that everybody has to think about themselves and decide for themselves what is equitable and what is inequitable. I don't think it's any different than it's been for eons. There are always going to be those who have more and those who have less, at least in our present uh, economic formula. That doesn't mean that things won't change, and they have. And we also have to look at affluence and poverty in terms of the society in which we measure it in. Certainly, the poor in the United States live better than most of the world. So it doesn't make a, a whole lot of sense to say, I'm poor when I'm well-fed. I have a roof over my head. I got some medical care. I got Medicaid. I'm able to go to school. I can even go to technical school or college on loans and grants. And there's plenty of help out there for those who are willing to apply themselves. So we have to really think about this. And we have to think about the people who live in, quote, quote, poverty in the United States and what the factors are that continue that cycle and how to break it. 
Well, it's a multifactorial, of course, and we're seeing black Americans uh, increasingly uh, escalating up the ladder to the middle, upper middle, and even upper class now. Well, there's a thing called the Gini, G-I-N-I index, and this was developed by an Italian statistician and sociologist named Corrado Gini in 1912, and he published a paper called Variability and Mutability. And he tried to uh, define a number that ranges between 1 and 0 and is based on a resident's net income. And for him, it helped define the gap between the rich and the poor, with 0 representing perfect equality, that is, everybody has the same income, and 1 representing perfect inequality, where one guy has 99% of the wealth and everybody else has 1%. And this has been glummed onto by the Democrats and the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is another code word for socialism. They're the people who said that we have the most expensive health care in the world. Baloney. They're the people who say that we have one of the widest income gaps. Baloney. So this apparently is meant to measure the inequality among values of a frequency distribution. In other words, it looks at this curve and distribution curve of everybody's income in the United States. That is, who reports that income and their levels. And it tries to see what kind of a ratio there is. So for a large number of people where only one person has all the income or consumption, and all the others have none except what he's or she is willing to give them, then that's bad. That's one. And zero is where we all are the same. But these measures are not overly sensitive to specifics of the income distribution, like are you getting supplemental assistance? Are you living off your retirement so that your income has fallen? However, your house is paid for, your car is paid for, you got Medicare and a supplement, or you're in a Medicare HMO, a Medicare Advantage plan, so you got the basis covered. You don't have much to pay on the house or the car, just maintenance and upkeep, taxes and insurance, and you have to feed yourself. And other than that, you don't have a lot of real basic needs that have to be covered. You got your health care, you've got the roof over your head. You go shopping at Salvation Army, where you can find me many a Monday morning, because it's half off. So the Gini coefficient is kind of like a shotgun splatter approach. It's not a real rifle shot of, at exactly what the income distribution is and why. So if we sort out these populations on the basis of age, uh, sex, um, educational level, retirement or no retirement, Medicaid or no Medicaid, it's quite different. So the inequality in this Gini coefficient of income or wealth really doesn't hold up very well, and it's been criticized, and there's also been a lot of uh, attempts by economists and sociologists to tweak the numbers and make a little bit different formula. So the, off, the Organization of Economic cooperation and development, which, as you know, I've been critical of, considered all of this, the effect of taxes and transfer payments, and African countries, I would guess sub-Saharan, had the highest pre-tax disparity between the rich and the poor, the Gini coefficient, 
in South Africa with one of the world's highest, 0.63 to 0.7. Closer you get to one, the worse it is. But this drops to about 0.52 after social assistance is taken to, into account in South Africa. And remember that the population there had lived under apartheid for centuries, or a few centuries anyway. And so it's just been within the past 20 to 30 years that they have actually had the opportunity to advance within the society, at least to the level that the elite white families have. So that's changing there. But there are issues, again, in, in interpreting these genie factors or coefficients. And there are some values that may result from many different mathematical curves that we put together. The people should be taken into account, the population, the demographics. If our country is made up of mostly 65-year-olds and up, it's not going to look good there's going to be a small percentage, relatively speaking, that have most of the wealth or have the bigger incomes because we're living on retirement. Countries with aging populations or with baby boomers experience an increasing pre-tax coefficient. That is that there's a widening gap on the Gini scale. Even if real income distribution for the people who are still working remains constant. So it, 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 it doesn't work. It won't work here. And so the OECD, our good socialist friends, can't say that we're one of the worst in terms of inequality of incomes and distribution. And there's been a dozen or so revisions of this Gini coefficient. And we can't mistake the measurement of income distribution with the me measurement of wealth. Wealth is different. Wealth is what I own. Well, what do you own? Well, I don't own my house. I'm still paying the bank. I have some equity in it. I don't own the office building. I'm still paying the bank. I have very little equity in that. We've refinanced a few times. Of course, I've lived like a king on the banks. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. and Mrs. Banker. So we can't mistake that because you may not own much, but you may have plenty of money to do the things you want to do. You may have a nice apartment. You may have a nice small car. You may be putting some money away into a retirement account. And then you've got a lot of disposable income left over because you're single and you're making 50, 60 grand a year. So it's an interesting phenomenon. And it's only as accurate as a gross domestic product, this Genie Index, and the income data that, that a country produces. And let's remember that many developing countries and even many of the so-called industrialized Western countries don't keep accurate records or they don't keep their records the same way we do. They're not as transparent. They're not as forthright. And the guys in the lunchroom will say, oh, come on. What do you mean, France doesn't keep the same records we do? No, they don't. It's different. And as I've said before, the Clintons badmouthed physicians in the 1990s saying that the United States had the worst 
infant mortality rate in the world, which is baloney. A group of Scandinavian researchers looked at all of this, and when they compared apples to apples, we did better than anybody. Why? Because they kept their statistics differently. They counted a baby who died within two weeks as a stillbirth. The Japanese counted babies under 1,000 grams as a stillbirth. That may have changed now, but when they looked at it, nobody can match us. Nobody can come anywhere close to what we do. And I know this intimately because I'm a doctor and my sister was a neonatal intensive care nurse. Now, whether or not saving some of these 1,000-gram babies is a good thing or a bad thing, that's for society to decide. That's not for me. From my perspective, any advancements in medicine are good. And we can put those to use, if not now, perhaps later in some other form. And we know more about the physiology of the human being because of these preemies, these little early born babies. So for me, there's something valuable there. So this Gini coefficient is a very superficial way of looking at things and certainly not one that I would consider as of great value, although the organization, you know, the for the economic cooperation and development, they like all these kinds of things, and it dumbs it down. It's like the World Health Organization. These people really are not on the ball. They are just not on the ball. And with that, I'm going to go get a cup of joe. I'm going to give Chris a potty break, and I'll be right back. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. President Obama facing a tough task on his two-day visit to Germany as he tries to overcome stiff opposition to a transatlantic trade deal between the U.S. and Europe. Supporters say the agreement would boost business at a time of global economic uncertainty. Critics say it will erode consumer protections and environmental standards. The U.S. response to the latest North Korean missile test claim is to put Pyongyang's foreign minister on a short leash while he's in New York to visit the U.N. North Korea claims it successfully test-fired a ballistic missile from a submarine. Four federal agents have been shot and wounded while trying to make an arrest at a Kansas motel. Police say two U.S. marshals, an FBI agent, and another federal agent suffered non-life-threatening injuries last night. And police in Wisconsin say a suspect is in custody following a shooting at a high school prom that injured three. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Can Care Clinic for Canadians and Visitors. Located at 639 938th Avenue North, St. Pete. One block from 66th Street North. We accept travel insurance. Full service clinic with x-ray, lab, Coumadin check, minor surgery, ultrasound echo, nuclear scanning, and in-house pharmacy. 727-384-6411. 727-384-6411. That's 727-384-6411. 
Dr. Bill for West Coast Radiology. Our good friends at West Coast Radiology offer convenient and comprehensive x-ray diagnostics, including open MRI, CT scan, CT PET, mammography, and ultrasound. With state-of-the-art equipment and four convenient locations, you're assured of friendly, comprehensive care. Most insurance is accepted and competitive self-pay rates, plus Saturday appointments. Call West Coast Radiology at 727-771-2795. That's 727-771-2795. This is a special notice to all U.S. taxpayers. If you owe the IRS or state back taxes and cannot afford to pay them back, there's good news. Due to the financial hardship many are facing in today's economy, the IRS has made it easier to settle delinquent tax problems through a federal program called the Fresh Start Initiative. Qualifying for this program will resolve your tax problem, end all collections, and possibly reduce your back taxes by up to 90%. If you are facing wage garnishments, liens, bank levies, audits, or payroll taxes, it's not too late. Your circumstances may qualify you for this special program, protecting your savings and your assets. If you owe the IRS or state back taxes and cannot afford to pay them back, there's no need to worry anymore. Call the hotline at Victory Tax Solutions to see if you qualify and potentially save thousands. For this free information, call 800-417-9269. 800-417-9269. That's 800-417-9269. Hey, it's the captain here. For your next big party or event, call Frankie's Patriot Barbecue in Tarpon Springs. You can have the same authentic oak smoke goodness you enjoy at Frankie's catered right to your door. Call Frankie's Patriot Barbecue at 727-935-4838 and ask about their catering menu. Veterans, tell them the captain sent you for a discount. Elegant or redneck, your event's better with catering from Frankie's Patriot Barbecue. That number again is 727-935-4838. Tell them the captain sent you. We'll have a mostly sunny, nice day today. High 86. Then clear to partly cloudy this evening with a low of 69. Monday will be partly sunny with a high of 85. Then on Tuesday, look for mostly sunny skies with a passing shower and a high of 85. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Holly Holdren for AM 860, The Answer. And I'm back. This is Dr. Billy Radio MD, a little bit of the Nashville team singing Tobacco Road. Talking about Mama died, Daddy was a drunk, left on the road as a kid. He grew up in a shack. All he owned was what was on his back. He's going to move out, make some money, come back, blow it all up, build a city where the old shack was. So it's a song about poverty. Uh, interestingly, I love this. The Nashville teens were a British group. We're looking at the Brits in the 60s saying, oh, we want to be like the British pop musicians. And they're looking over here saying, we want to be like the Nashville pop musicians. Interesting world. And the blues actually were, and, and jazz were a product of the Tennessee, Mississippi, Louisiana, Missouri corridor there. And it's a 
purely American uh, folk art, which has blossomed into a worldwide phenomenon. We're talking about uh, poverty, income disparity, and the the Democrats are preaching this uh, problem that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poor, which I don't buy. Hey, by the way, this is 860 The Answer, am860theanswer.com, and this is talk radio, so I've got a couple of questions, see if we can pull some responses from the audience this morning. We are at 877-969-8600. That's 877-969-8600. Now, my first question is, how have the middle class incomes been changing during the past three decades? And I'll give you uh, a splay here. Risen about 1% per year. Number two, risen about 2% per year. Number three, essentially no growth at all. Number four, fallen about 1% per year. So how have middle, come, middle class incomes changed in the past three decades? Up, down, or the same? So you give me a call and give me an answer, and I'll give you a little gift certificate to a restaurant. I'm at 877-969-8600. That's 877-969-8600. Now, I want to give you a little bit of information about the uh, disparity between the upper and the lower. Uh, we've talked in the first half of the show about the actual poverty level may not be truly reflective of what people have and how well off they are in the United States. The average household in the top 1% by income out-earned a typical bottom 90% household by how much in 2012? Uh, this I got off of the uh, Christian Science Monitor website. They have a really good news uh, uh, outlet uh, at the Christian Science Monitor. The Monitor is, or originally was their, their newspaper publication. Now it's online as well. So this is uh, another source along with Breitbart and Reuters. And there's just a number of wonderful websites out there where you can pick up news from all over the world, uh, from the U.K., you can... Google and get to uh, Istanbul's big papers, their English publications, and see what the editorials are. And you, you can practically get any large company's English newspaper online now. So how much difference is there between the top one and the bottom 90% in 2012? Seven times as much with income averaging 220,000, 14 times as much with income averaging 420,000, 42 times as much with income averaging 1.3 million, 15.1 times with income averaging 4.6 million. 42 times as much, the top versus the bottom in terms of gross income. That's not net, of course. And I was thinking about the poverty level for two at 15,000 in the United States and my income. And it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty big splay, too, as I've mentioned earlier in the show. Now, at 42 times, this is uh, with the uh, average of the lower 90% at about 30900 That's about $31,000. And the top being way above that, way above that. So which president said the following in a State of the Union address? This is all from the Christian Science Monitor. I just thought you guys would love this. The man of great wealth owes a peculiar obligation to the state because he derives special advantages from the mere existence of government. So the rich man benefits 
or the rich woman benefits because there's an organization within which he or she can work that has rules and regulations and laws and things that you can and cannot do, opportunities, uh, protection from uh, bad guys, whatever. And, you know, we think about the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages where warring tribes would attack each other in Germany or one kingdom would try to take the take over the other one in England and so on and so forth. And in the United States, a huge country, both by size and population, we're pretty safe from that sort of thing. Maybe if you're in parts of New York City where the mafia is big, you might have to pay some protection. We're paying our protection to the government. So who said that, that the great man of wealth owes a peculiar obligation to the state? It was Teddy Roosevelt. And you can tell that because he uses the word peculiar, which is not and our common parlance, but was a, a recognizable figure of speech in the 1900-1910 era. And this has also been echoed by other people like Barack Obama. Well, I haven't heard anybody back yet on how middle-class incomes have changed during the past three decades. And so I'm going to tell you the answer, and then I'll ask something else. They've risen about 1% per year, so over 30 years, that's... 30%. I don't know what inflation is. I don't think we've kept up with inflation, though, that's for sure. And these statistics come from the Congressional Budget Office. And it looks at inflation adjusted after tax income for the middle 20% of U.S. households. Now, Lyndon Johnson said, I want to be the president who helped feed the hungry and to prepare them to be taxpayers instead of tax eaters. And this was in his 1965 speech to Congress, the Great Society, I believe is what he called this program. He also described his early experience teaching at a school where kids often arrived hungry. And I hear that from a few people here in St. Petersburg. I think that that's probably not true and that if we investigated that, we would see that there are kids who are abused and neglected and not that they don't have enough to eat or they're not or it's not available to them but they have parents or caretakers who are not taking care of them although they have the resources to do so kids of alcoholics and drug addicts and so on and so forth where the income is being spent on something other than food clothing and shelter so and I challenged my friend uh, Salk, one of the guys in the lunchroom, he says his wife's a teacher or a social worker, and there are people starving in St. Petersburg, Florida. I keep saying, take me. I want to see them. I want to see these people. I want to do a blood count on them. I want to see what their uh, protein levels are in their blood. I want to see if they're anemic. I want to know if they have any other problems like chronic infections that's eating up a lot of their calories, or maybe they have inflammatory bowel disease and they can't absorb their food or they have chronic diarrhea or they're anorectic for psychiatric reasons. So there's a lot of factors that come into play, but as yet nobody in St. Petersburg, Florida has come forward and taken me to a household where people are starving. That's not to say it doesn't exist. It's just that nobody has done that for me. And I've said, show me. And I've driven and ridden through all the poor neighborhoods in, in St. Petersburg and, and right close to us is one of the, one of the most crime ridden neighborhoods in Pinellas County, which is the uh, east part of Gulfport and the 
adjacent portions of St. Petersburg that abut it, and that goes on down that quarter to 22nd Avenue South and Martin Luther King uh, and 4th Street, and those are areas south of there. There's a high density of uh, people living in smaller houses, uh, greater numbers, uh, lower incomes, and that's where a lot of the crime is. Now, I've driven through these neighborhoods. I've ridden my bicycle through them. I shuttled my son back and forth to Coquina Key, which is on the east side of this area, and you go right through that area. I have not seen anybody starving. The only people I see who are malnourished are those who are drunk on the street or have psychiatric problems and live on the street. And even these people can go get a free meal at a number of places downtown. St. Vincent de Paul has a soup kitchen. There's places to house these folks now. So in terms of real poverty, which to me means you don't have enough to eat, you don't have clothes necessary to protect you from the elements, you don't have a roof over your head, you don't have health care or the opportunity to receive health care. I don't see that. Now, it may exist, but I don't see it. So the distribution in the United States is inequitable, according to the Democrats. In France, before the revolution of 1789, there was 50% of the folks, I'm sorry, 10% of the French society that owned 50% of the wealth of the country. And people point to that and say, and they revolted because they were poor. Well, that's not actually true. If you dig into the history of the French Revolution, there were a number of factors involved. One of the big leading factors was the rising upper middle, middle, upper middle class. It said that they did not want the aristocracy to have that much power. The farmers were mad, not because they were starving or destitute, but because the government didn't do anything to intervene to keep the prices up. We had a similar revolt, nonviolent, but nevertheless a similar revolt during the Great Depression in the 1930s. In one instance, the dairy farmers all got together in public places and poured out all the milk that they were supposed to deliver to protest the uh, lack of support for the milk prices in the United States. And, of course, out of that came the price supports for uh, farmers in a number of areas. <clears throat> By the way, Marco Rubio is big into that with his sugarcane family here in South Florida. Uh, they're also a Cuban-American family, and they've backed him, and he makes sure that they're taken care of. So we have to think about these guys in Congress and why they're really there. Are the rich bad? Are they evil? A lot of guys in the lunchroom will say, well, you have to be a sociopath to make that kind of money. I think that you have to be somewhat cold and calculating to take on any big position, whether it's the president of the United States or the head of a large medical clinic or the president of a hospital corporation, and there are always going to be those few people who will do that. Is that evil? I don't know. Am I evil? Probably to a certain degree. But for the best and the most of the, of the time, I try the best to do the best, to give the best of me. 
for patients and family and friends and, and community. And you look at somebody like Andrew Carnegie, who built the steel industry in the United States, and he was one of the driving forces that took 19th century America into the 20th century and made us the great world power that we are because he had a technique that he brought from England called the Bessemer process. He didn't have a silver spoon in his mouth when he was born. He was in poverty. His mother and he came from Scotland when he was 12. He worked immediately selling newspapers, doing whatever. A smart guy, taught himself to a certain degree, got into business, put his ideas about making steel out of iron into use, and made a ton of money and brought down the price of steel from a dollar a pound to a nickel a pound between the Civil War era and the turn of the 20th century. And he didn't leave anything to anybody. He said, you better spend it all now or give it away because a trustee is not going to abide by your trust and your kids are not going to appreciate it. They'll just squander it. And so he gave all his money away to charity. And you know what he built? He built libraries for public use all over the Western world, England, Scotland, the United States. I mean, there's a ton of libraries out there that are indebted to him. Of course, now we don't need libraries now that we have computers and the Internet, but at that time it was a very important thing. And many of us in my generation spent long hours in the libraries preparing for class, working on projects and papers. He believed in philanthropy. He believed in giving it away. And there are a number of wealthy people now who believe the same. Michael Bloomberg, Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, they've all pledged to give half of their money away. If you're worth $50 billion, 25 doesn't seem like a lot. But for you and me, it is. It's a ton of money. And if they want me to help them distribute that for a small fee, I'll be glad to uh, take that job on. Uh, by the way, Elon Musk, I think, is the guy that's uh, started Tesla Motors, and they're floundering, floundering, not foundering, floundering. Now, this giving pledge focuses on billionaires, and there's 100 pledgers so far on this website, including these three guys above. Some people spend lavishly on sports. Ted Turner, the America's Cup, and Larry Ellison in the America's Cup. The America's Cup is the big sailboat race, and those boats cost millions of dollars, high-tech. And for them, it's important. I'm not quite sure of what importance it is to the rest of us, but at one time, sailing was a big deal. Now it's not as big a deal as it used to be. So purportedly, there's been a broad trend of income inequality in the United States. And how does that look? What does it look like? Well, the, the curve is actually U-shaped, with inequality starting very high, falling and remaining much lower for a half a century, and then rising again. Inequality decreased during the Great Depression and New Deal era because stocks had no value, and most people had their wealth in stocks, just like in the late 90s. 
when the tech bubble popped, a lot of people that were wealthy and well-to-do all of a sudden were not so wealthy and not so well-to-do, and some were broke, which calls into question of what value is it to tag wealth to stocks? Let's look at somebody like Elon Musk, who owns a big chunk of the stock in, in this new electric car company, Tesla. Is it of any value? Heck no. They have no earnings yet. They're in deficit spending mode. So it's not of any value. Yet, he's considered a multi-billionaire based on stocks he owns. His income's nowhere near that in terms of hard cash every year. But I'm sure that he has a nice portfolio with dividends coming in. By the way, the dividends and the interest on bonds and stocks, that's what Mitt Romney didn't want to pay on. He wants you and me to pay. And, of course, he hates Trump because Trump says, let's tax the rich more. The rich have a responsibility. And if you define it as above $250,000 a year, I'm all for that because I make less than that. So, you know, go get them. And I don't have a lot of disposable income left. I'm still deep in debt and working hard. But there's a number of factors that economists cite as the, quote, quote, increasing gulf between the rich and the poor. And they say the declining power and prevalence of labor unions, technological advances that help the educated but allow some lower or middle tier jobs to be automated out of existence. They could be done by a robot or a computer and tax cuts that help the rich. So these things come into play. And as I said earlier, you may have a feeling about equalizing grades in a classroom and think that that's wrong. If you study hard and you get an A and some guy goofs off and he gets a D, why should he be brought up to a C and you brought down to a B? That's not fair. But then you say, well, can you apply this to wealth? If you have 50% of the wealth held by 5 or 10% of the people, is that fair? Should that be redistributed in some way? Well, in some way it will be. Maybe not in ways that are apparent to you and me, but it will be. And we have to remember, too, that those who make big money spend big money as a general rule. We can look at Sheldon Adelson, the tycoon that owns casinos out in Las Vegas. He's a member of the jury side of the family. He gives $50 million a year for political donations. So it's a tough topic, and it's not solvable. But you've got a little bit of the idea of, of why we think there is or is not a disparity. And I appreciate you guys listening. I'll be back next week. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Jeffrey Burchard at your service for the next hour, the fastest.